0: Man, if you would be turning in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 28, Isaiah 28. As you're doing that, we're just going to kind of review briefly. um, Chapters 28 and 29 are dealing with foolish leaders and false counsel. In chapter 28 and 29, it doesn't mention it explicitly, but it's implied in the background, and it took me a little bit of reading to understand that Isaiah is encouraging the leaders in Jerusalem not to trust their political and alliances that they had with Egypt, but to trust God. And so we covered, first of all, the fact that Isaiah pointed to the north, to Ephraim, and to the fact that they would be drunk with with wine. And The implication was that Jerusalem wasn't much better. And so he kind of highlighted that. And then he highlighted that judgment's coming and that a sign of judgment is tongues. And we talked about tongues last week. I want to put kind of an addendum onto that. Brother Paul came up to me afterward. He mentioned the fact that he knew a lady that got out of tongues and what caused her to get out of tongues was she heard someone speak in tongues and she knew the language they were talking in and it was blasphemous. And so I mentioned the fact we need to show compassion because many are deceived by the idea of tongues, but also there are those that are intentionally leading people astray. And Jesus Jesus showed compassion For all the multitudes except for the religious leaders that intentionally were leading people away from God. So it takes discernment on that, and I appreciate him bringing that up and thought I ought to just kind of add that addendum to the fact that when you hear people getting involved with that, kind of encourage them that that's not biblical today. It was for a different time and for a different reason but if a person's intentionally doing that, you need to pray also that God would cause them to see the error that they're, they're propagating. So um, anyway, Isaiah was dealing with it primarily because there was going to be a foreign army come in, primarily the Assyrians for the north and then eventually the Babylonians for the south. And that was how God was going to speak to them because they wouldn't listen to his prophets. The point of the message was trust God and rest. We saw that right, kind of almost in the middle of the chapter. As well as Messiah is a precious cornerstone. And so Isaiah is weaving into this under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. What's going to happen not only near term, but far term? That there's going to be a Messiah and that he's going to be the cornerstone. And we looked at the New Testament passages that quote Isaiah on these things. And then, lastly, last week, we covered the fact that none would escape, that they're going to all be swept away. And, you know, we could look at this as a parallel to spiritual things. We're called to trust God. Instead, we try and trust our own Works and our own ideas and our own things. And in Hebrews 9, it tells us that his appointed unto man once to die, and after this, the judgment. No one has ever escaped death. It comes sooner or later. The only one that conquered death was Jesus, and because of him, there is a resurrection. But no one else has escaped. Well, I stand corrected. Uh, Enoch did as well as Elijah the two of them God took to heaven but other than those two everyone else has found death as their doorstep into eternity and so there's a judgment and there was a judgment coming for the Israelites today we're going to start with the parable of the farmer now to me, it, it was like, okay, how does this fit? And then the other thought that came to mind, I am the last person that should be ta- teaching on this. I don't care what I plant, it dies. I planted crotons a year or two ago and every one of them has died. Um, I can't even grow grass right. My lawn is green because of weeds, not because of grass. And so I'm thinking, I am the last person that should be teaching on the parable of the farmer. Now, I thought it was kind of interesting. You know, it was like, how does this tie in? And I'm looking at all these other things that Isaiah has covered. And one of the words or phrases that he used last week as we were talking about this judgment was a strange work or a strange act. In verse 21 of chapter 28, it talks about, he may do his work, his strange work, and bring to pass his act, his strange act. And eventually, after reading and rereading, it became a little more obvious to me that this parable is there to kind of Help us understand why this is a strange work. Why is God doing this strange work? I thought it was interesting last week. Our pastor preached on the parable of... The soils. Now, we've always heard it called the parable of the sower. But he kind of said, well, we really ought to correct that. And he made the statement... <clears throat> excuse me he made the statement that a parable is a story that illustrates a truth and I thought that was pretty good that, that kind of describes a parable pretty good Jesus proclaimed that he was going to tell them this parable Isaiah doesn't say he's going to tell us a parable but in effect that's what this is And so as we read this passage, starting in Isaiah 28, verse 23, to the end of the chapter, I'm going to kind of give you the details of the story, but I want you to be thinking, what's the truth behind this story? So Isaiah 28, starting in verse 23, it says, Give ye ear, and hear my voice. Hearken and hear my speech. Doth the plowman plow all day to sow? Doth he open and break the clods of his ground? When he hath made plain the face thereof, doth he not cast abroad the fitches and scatter the cummin and cast in the principal wheat and the appointed barley and the rye in their place? For as God doth instruct him to discretion and doth teach him. For fitches are not threshed with a threshing instrument, neither is a cartwheel turned upon the coming, but the fitches are beaten out with a staff, and the cumin with a rod. Bread corn is bruised. Because he will not ever be threshing it, nor break it with the wheel of the cart, nor bruise it with his horsemen. This also cometh forth from the Lord of hosts, which is wonderful in counsel and excellent in working. And so we have this parable of the farmer. And as I looked at this, not that I can put it in practice, but as I considered what a real farmer does, it became obvious to me that there's three steps mentioned in this. The first one is the plowing. The first step talks about the fact this farmer goes out and plows the ground. Now, it kind of puzzled me when I was reading verse 24 What's he trying to say? And and so I went to a different translation. I went to the ESV, and it kind of describes it a little differently than how I understood it from the King James. In this passage, in the ESV, it says, Does he who plows for sowing plow continually? Does he continually open and harrow his ground? Now, if that's all that was required for farming was to plow, I might could handle that, because I could go out there every day and just plow the ground. I know how to break it up, got a little thing that I thought might help grow grass, and you know, you it's these little wheels with spikes, and it, it plows the ground. I did all of that, didn't help me a bit, but if all I had to do was go out and plow the ground all the time, I could do that. and so. The question that is brought up by Isaiah is does the farmer just do that? And the answer is no. He doesn't plow continually. He plows till the ground is ready. And once the ground is ready, then he sows the seed. Now I've been told, this is not experience on my part, but I've been told that when farmers kind of figure out their acreage and what they're going to do, they plant different crops at different years so that the ground has a chance to recover from one crop that may require certain types of soil most of the time. And so they rotate their crops. And if you look at the next part of this, when he talks about the sowing in verses 23 through 26, He cast abroad these different things, the wheat, the barley, and he mentioned several others. And in verse 26, he said, God doth instruct him to discretion, to teach him. And so the farmer goes out, he plows, and either based on his experience or what he's been taught through maybe his relatives or whomever, Somewhere along the way, God instructs him on how to rotate the crops and what to do. In fact, in our Bible, I think many of you probably have heard of the year of Jubilee. Every so often, they were to give the land rest, and in the year of Jubilee, they wouldn't plant crops. They would just let the land go. The farmers learned how to to sow, and so... The first thing that we see, and I kind of lump plowing in with sowing. You got to get the the soil ready, and after last week where we talked about the different types of soil, the farmer is basically getting the soil ready. If it's the wrong kind of soil, through his plowing and his work, he's getting it ready so it'll accept the seed, and then he's planting the seed. So the next step then is the harvest There's an appropriate way in which they reap and harvest the crop Now, last week we also saw um, Where the missionary uh, Or the man that was in charge of Baptist Mid-Missions Showed that big harvesting machine I think I could drive one of those But I wouldn't know which crop to use it on whereas the real farmer does. And what Isaiah is saying here is he knows how to plow when the ground's ready. He knows how to plant the seed. He knows what to sow in the various times. And then he knows how to bring in the harvest. There's some things that if he used the mill that they would have, which is, I think mainly for wheat, for grinding it to to make bread, you don't put corn on that. And so he highlights what they would have known, and keep in mind, the people he's talking to, the main industry that they had was agriculture. So that's the story, the parable of the farmer. He knows how to plow, he knows how to sow, he knows how to harvest. The first one I think I could handle. The other two I'm clueless about. But I can understand the story. So that begs the real big question. What is the truth behind the story? And That's where you get to help me out. What is the truth behind this parable? I'll give you a clue clue is in the last verse of the chapter God's way. And God teaches us his way. okay God teaches us his way and that is true that's mentioned in this parable however I think there's another truth that's even bigger but more subtle you know because Mickey's right He does teach us his way. If we'll listen, he'll teach. He taught the farmer. But what else does it tell us about God? Because I think Mickey has the right idea. What does this parable tell us about God? God gives the increase. Say that again, John? God gives the increase. God gives the increase. That's definitely true. Nancy, you had your hand up too. Okay, so one of the things that is true about this parable is God knows that whole process. In fact, he is the Lord of the harvest, and so he has taught them that whole process. But there's something else that I found there, Bill, and then I think I see a couple other hands, too. It says, give ear and hear my voice. Okay. Pay attention. Okay. To the Lord. Definitely we should pay attention, but we don't. (laughs) and Bill laughed because he knows that I'm telling the truth. I took what he said and said, yeah, that's the truth, but we don't do it. Ken? God is the ultimate farmer. He knows exactly what he wants to do and when it's going to happen, and he's going to make sure it happens perfectly, and it's going to be his will. Okay. God is the ultimate farmer. Let me get the last hand here. Terry Ann, yeah. Okay, so the farmer is to be sensitive about how he handles crops and yes God wants us to be sensitive in how we treat people but Ken hit on the key thing God is the only one that knows everyone in this room and just to use a phrase I like to use he knows just what buttons to push to move us the way he wants to move us He knows just how to squeeze yours and my heart to cause us to pursue after him. And so the truth of the matter is this parable is teaching one key truth. God knows exactly what is necessary for each one of us. The farmer knows what's necessary to grow each type of crop and how to harvest that crop. God knows what is necessary to deal with each one of us. And so, if you think of all the things that we were talking about, at the end of this description about judgment, Isaiah gives them a parable of the farmer. And what he's trying to say to them is, God knows how to deal with each one of us based on what kind of soil we are, based on what he wants to bring in the way of a harvest. There are two responses that that are mentioned in Isaiah 28. There are two outcomes mentioned in Isaiah 28. One response is to trust God and rest. And that's what we covered in Isaiah 28 is... Isaiah is pleading with them, trust God, trust God, please trust God because he'll give you rest. The other response is to trust Egypt and be subjected to the judgment that's going to happen not only to Israel, not only to Mm -hmm. Judah, but to Egypt and to all the other nations. And so that was Isaiah's plea in that time. But I think we ought to walk away and not ignore the truth that he's presenting because I think it's bigger than just that local setting. Similarly, today, when people hear the gospel, there's two responses. One response is to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. The other response is to basically trust our own works and our own ways and ideas and think that we can earn our way to heaven but will be condemned. Different character, different hearts require different treatment. One pastor put it this way. He said, The same sun that hardens clay melts ice. And the truth is, God knows what each one of us need to motivate us to either pursue him or to cause us to rebel even more and push further away from him. We heard from a missionary director of a mission board, and one of his key verses was, Pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth workers. I think we ought to take to heart the parable we heard last week about the parable of the soil, and this parable, and we ought to pray that God would prepare the heart of the people that need to be saved. If you would, I'm going to put up on the slide a verse. It's John. 644, And I think it goes hand in hand with the truth that that Isaiah has brought before us today. It says, no man can come unto me. This is Jesus speaking. No man can come unto me except the Father which hath sent me. Draw him, and I will raise him up in the last day. The truth of the matter is we have a free will. But it's also true that God is sovereign. And like I said, he knows which buttons to push in each one of us to bring us to a place where we either accept Christ as our Lord and Savior or reject him. There was a quote that I wrote down in my Bible years ago that was convicting at the time, and every time I read it, It's convicting today, and I hope it will grab your attention the way it did mine. Adrian Rogers, I believe, said this. He said, We as Christians spend more time praying to keep sick saints out of heaven than to keep lost sinners out of hell. It was convicting not because of keeping sick saints out of heaven, but how much time do I spend praying for those that I know, friends, family, neighbors, that I know don't know Jesus? Have I spent equal time or more time praying for them that God would work in their heart? We hear a lot of things, a lot of teaching and preaching about reaching the lost, but I think many times we don't take the right first step. Think about this parable we just looked at. What's the first thing the farmer does? Prepare the, soil. Prepare the soil. Break up the ground. Plow. Can you and I do that in someone else's life? Not really. God may use us a little bit. We might be the instrument in his hand to help break up the soil. But God's the one that knows exactly what it's going to take to make that heart fertile soil where they'll hear God's word. And so I would encourage us that we ought to pray and that we ought to be persistent in prayer. I know why we pray for sick saints. They're our friends. We know them better than everyone else. But those that are sinners have a much more serious condition. They're headed for an eternity apart from God in a place called hell. And it's not that we're trying to be mean. It's what we're taught by God's word. It's the price of rebelling against God. There's another passage. It's in Luke 18. I'm just going to read the first verse. And I think the the 7th verse, 6th or 7th verse. There was a parable that Jesus spoke to them. He said, men ought always to pray and not to faint. And the parable goes on to talk about a judge and a widow. There was an unrighteous judge and there was a widow. And the widow kept coming back to the judge, wanting him to make things right for her. And she did it relentlessly. And the other part of this quote that I have there is the judge's final response after this widow came there. She says, yet because this widow troubleth me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. We can never weary God. And someone once asked me, you know, how often do you come to God with a prayer request? And I said, well depends on how important the prayer request is the most important prayer request that I think we could take before God is for someone we know and love that needs to be saved and so I would say let's be like the widow lady and the judge when it comes to people's salvation when it comes to other things in our life they aren't near as important That's the most important thing. That's the one that we should be the most relentless about. And I believe it starts with God. I believe before you or I have any success with sharing the gospel with someone, God has to prepare their heart. I think most of us, if we're honest with ourselves about what our human nature is like, We're rebellious, and we repulse against the idea of someone telling us what we need to do. And yet, in effect, telling someone about Jesus tells them what they need to do. And if their heart isn't prepared by the Lord of the Harvest, then we have no chance of them really responding to the message of the gospel. So one thing I do like, and I think some of you went through the exchange training and, and program, he mentions that we need to be in prayer, and then we need to share God's word. That's what people respond to. Pre- prayer is preparing the soil, and that's God's business more so than ours. How many have heard the song... It took a miracle. Okay. I see about half the group does. I'm just going to read one verse because I think it, it helps put in perspective what hopefully has come across through this parable of the farmer. It says, My father is omnipotent, and that you can't deny. A God of might and miracles is written in the sky. It took a miracle to put the stars in place. It took a miracle to hang the world in space. But when he saved my soul, cleansed and made me whole, it took a miracle of love and grace. I think personally too often we underestimate how much we need to pray so that the soil gets prepared. Isaiah is giving us a tremendous truth through this parable of the farmer. Farmer knows just what to do to bring in a harvest of a crop. God knows just what to do to bring in a harvest of souls that would accept him. And if ever our nation needs revival, it's today. And the only way that comes is through what I think we've just covered today. Bob, did you... Bring your hand up. Yeah. Uh, I was born and raised as a city slicker. As a city slicker? Yeah. I got that right. <laughs> Later on, though, in life, I got to spend some time on the farm. And there's one process that needs to go between two and three. If you're raising real crops like corn and soybeans, that's cultivation and I think that process needs to be in a Christian's life also yeah there are probably a lot of processes that I skip because I'm not an expert on that but Bob mentioned that he like me would be probably described as a city slicker but he got a little bit experience on the farm and he mentions between the time you plant and the time you harvest you cultivate the, the, the crop and God does all of that. He knows all of that, and what He illustrates in this parable is exactly what what Bob's bringing out, and that is that just as the farmer knows his crops and everything that's involved in raising those crops, God knows each one of us and exactly how to squeeze our heart to turn us whichever way He wants. In fact. There's a proverb about that. I think it's Proverbs twenty-one, one. It says, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, and as the rivers of water he turneth it whichever way he wills. And I probably paraphrased part of that and de- didn't get it as a direct quote, but the idea is there that no heart is greater than God. And if we want to see revival... I would encourage us to pray for those that we know need the Lord Jesus. And I was really pleased today as we had prayer requests. Several were mentioned about prayer for the spiritual needs of people around us. And so I would encourage us as a group to Pray for those and bring into our class those that need to be prayed for for salvation. Don't need their whole name. Just pray for you know, their first name, and God knows exactly who they are. But I hope after you've heard this parable of the farmer that you would go to the Lord of the harvest and pray that he would prepare the soil in hearts of people around us. With that being said, we actually have finally gotten to the second woe. You probably were wondering, well, you said this is the, the woes that we're into. Uh, what's the next woe? Well, let's read it. And we'll move on to Isaiah 29, verses 1 through 8. And this one says, Woe to Ariel, to Ariel. The city where David dwelt, add ye year to year, let them kill sacrifices, yet I will distress Ariel, and there shall be heaviness and sorrow, and it shall be unto me as Ariel. And I will camp against thee round about, and I will lay siege against thee with mount, and I will raise forts against thee, and thou shalt be brought down, and thou shalt speak out, Of the ground, and thy speech shall be low out of the dust, and thy voice shall be as one that hath familiar spirit out of the ground, and thy speech shall whisper out of the dust. Moreover, the multitude of thy strangers shall be like small dust, and the multitude of terrible ones shall be as chafe that passeth away. Yea, it shall be in an instant, suddenly. Thou shalt be visited of the Lord of hosts with thunder and with earthquake and with great noise, with storm and tempest and the flaming of devouring fire. So that brings up a number of questions as we read this woe. The woe is to Ariel. And so the first question is, who is Ariel? Jerusalem how do you know that, it says that David lived there. okay it said that David lived there and I was a little bit confused because if you go a little bit later he says in verse 2 it shall be unto me as Ariel and so I was like well how's that work well in the commentaries, there are three views about Ariel. Ariel means Lion of God. It also can be taken to mean an, an altar hearth. And it definitely refers to Jerusalem. And so when you first read this, it says, Woe to Ariel, to Ariel the city where David dwelt. Add ye year to year, let them kill the sacrifices." And there shall be heaviness and sorrow, and it shall be unto me as Ariel. And so the view is that this is referring to Jerusalem, but God views Jerusalem as an altar. In fact, they viewed themselves as the only legitimate place where sacrifices could be offered to God. So that then brings up The question of, okay, if God is against them, and it is Jerusalem, what is Ariel doing? Why is God against them? Okay, they definitely have turned away from God. Um, There are other passages even building up to this that talks about them forsaking God. So Wayne's right. Technically, that's the biggest reason. Bill? Uh, they were not listening to God with the, about the, uh, making a pact with the Egypt or Assyrians. The okay. They definitely, as we've been talking about, were going about trusting their political alliances more than trusting God, which is what Bill's bringing up. But what else were they doing? Was it mentioned here that they were doing? Okay, they were making sacrifices. And these sacrifices, were they genuine? No, they were going through the motions. And and that's why it says, add ye year to year. And so what God is saying through the prophet Isaiah is he's saying, year after year after year, sacrifice after sacrifice you go through the motions, but it's just that. It's a ritual. It's motions. And we're going to see that as we go a little further in this chapter that he, he brings that out. And so, what are they doing? They're going through ritual, religious actions year after year. Sad thing is, it can happen to any of us. Okay? Okay. It can happen to genuine followers of Jesus as well as just a moral person that thinks they're getting to heaven on their good works. They can just go through the motions. It can become a ritual, and that's what it became to Jerusalem. So what happens to Ariel? We know that it's talking about Jerusalem. We know that they're offering sacrifices that's just more a ritual than genuine worship. What happens to them? Nancy? God no, going to judge them. Okay, God is going to judge them. Verses 3 and 4 describe that judgment. What's happening in verse 3? Okay, God's coming up against them. Now, obviously, God doesn't do that himself, but rather he brings what? Foreign nations and other armies. And so God is against them. He's judging them. And the first thing we see is he brings other armies against them. And then what happens? Verse 4, what happens? They're defeated. They're defeated. Okay. The King James just simply says, brought down. Now, how thoroughly this is, is described by two phrases. There are two phrases that are repeated each twice in this verse. What are those two phrases? Say that again. You shall. You shall. Well, that's repeated too, but I was looking at phrases that describe how they're brought down, how they're destroyed. Okay. Out of the ground is repeated twice. And out of the dust. And so uh, you're right about you shall is also in there, but I was looking at the description of how badly they're defeated. And it's pretty much total destruction is what he's talking about. Now, after he mentions what happens to Jerusalem, verse 5 says, Moreover, the multitude of thy strangers shall be like small dust. And so he turns his attention to the enemies, the ones that God uses to come against Israel, something happens to them. What happens to them? God gives them a big feast for taking care of spanking his, his chosen people, right? Okay, they pass away. If you look at this, it says... Yeah, the multitude of terrible ones shall be as the chafe that passeth away. And then it says it shall be in an instant suddenly they shall be visited of the Lord of hosts or thou shalt be visited of the Lord of hosts. So after they have accomplished God's chastisement upon his chosen people God also judges those nations. Now I'm not an expert on history but anyone remember anything in history of where an army came against Jerusalem and then the army was for the most part destroyed remember a particular king or anyone that did that well I don't feel bad then My history isn't any better than anyone else's. (laughs) Well, a little bit later, we aren't going to go into all the details, but the immediate fulfillment of this, uh, many believe was when Assyria under Sennacherib, or Sennacherib, I don't know that I pronounced it right, he was the king, came against Jerusalem, and he came during Hezekiah's reign, And Hezekiah went before the Lord and said, Lord, this is what they're saying. And Hezekiah never defeated Israel. His army, an angel of the Lord, came and destroyed much of his army such that they went back to Assyria. And so some believe that there was that fulfillment. There is obviously a future fulfillment when you read the verse, yeah, the passage in verse 5 and 6, and particularly 6, it says, With thunder, with earthquake, with great noise, with storm and tempest and flame of devouring fire. Those things haven't happened yet. And so most of the commentaries seem to point to the fact that Isaiah, as he's looking at what's happening to Jerusalem, God gives him revelation of what's going to happen, what we know in the tribulation time, and at the end of the tribulation when Christ comes back again. And so in the end, there's going to be the destruction of Jerusalem's Jerusalem's enemies, and it's going to be sudden, and it's going to be God's doing. Well, that will happen at the second coming of Christ. The nations, and we're told in Revelation and other passages that all the nations round about Israel are going to come against them. If you think about the end times, the things to come, we're told that as the church is removed, there's going to be a seven-year period that's the time of Jacob's trouble, which is God. And we just talked about how he's prepared the hearts of people. Well, he's preparing Israel to accept their Messiah. And the culmination of that is at the end of that seven-year tribulation time, all the nations of the world are going to be against the Jewish people. It looks like they are finally going to be annihilated, which has been Satan's desire ever since Messiah came and ever since really... God chose them as a people. And as these nations come against Israel, Christ will come again and he will destroy them. They won't even do a thing. They'll just look to their Messiah. They will finally accept Jesus as their Messiah. And so all of this passage gives us a hint of Some of the things that were going to happen in Isaiah's time period. But then it's like God said, oh, while we're thinking about this, let me show you what ultimately happens. What ultimately happens is, as the nations and enemies of the Jewish people come against them, Jesus will come again, and he will, when he comes... There will definitely be thunder. There will be an earthquake. Uh, We're told that when his feet touch the Mount of Olives, that it's going to break in in half or separate in half, and that will be with an earthquake. And so all of these things that are described here aren't exactly focused on just the time that Isaiah was warning them, but there's also future revelation all of that being said Isaiah is going to give us now the condition of Israel or the Jewish people's heart he does that in verses 9 through 14 and I'm looking at the clock and I'm thinking there's no way we should even start that and so If you would, this week, spend some time looking at Isaiah 9 through 14. And really, you can go even further because hopefully next week we'll go beyond that. But um, in particular, passage from 9 to 14 describes for us God's dealing with his chosen people, with Israel. And so it will be good for us to understand. And I think it's kind of interesting. This passage, much of our understanding of it comes from how it's quoted in the New Testament. Jesus quotes from one of these verses. And so see if you can find which verse Jesus is quoting. And then also the Apostle Paul quotes from this when he describes some things and see if you could find where those passages are because we'll be trying to cover that next week. Well, let's close with a word of prayer and then we'll be dismissed. Heavenly Father, again, we give thanks to you for your word. Father, we are grateful that our salvation is a work that you do in our heart. You give us the faith, you give us the gift of grace, you give us the gift of your Son who died for our sins. Father, help us to pray and, and to be more persistent in asking you to work in the hearts of the people around us that we love so that they might be saved. We thank you for the message that you gave Isaiah and how it speaks to us today. Father, help us to have a burden for those that are lost. We pray for our pastor as he brings us the message and the service. We pray that he would exalt Christ highly in in how he, he points us to Jesus. We thank you for all this in Jesus' name. Amen.